Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Cool Hand Grace Podcast. Another week and another biblical passage awaits us to explore. Our goal is to gain insight and application from God's Word that can encourage us in our day-to-day lives. I'm Pastor Kurt Witzig, and on behalf of the College Ministry at Duluth Bible Church, welcome. It's nice to be back into the Word again, and back to have another Cool Hand Grace podcast after we had a break for several weeks over the holidays. We left off last December in Luke chapter 18, where Jesus taught us the beauty of little children and how we receive the kingdom of God as a little child, alluding to their simplicity, their humility, and their willingness to be loved. And this week, we will see someone else who comes to Jesus. This time, no disciple seeks to prevent him from approaching like they did with the children. And he comes with a simple question, and he was probably certain Jesus could help him solve his last little problem as to his own entrance into the kingdom. This young man will posture for us quite a contrast to the simplicity of the faith of children that we saw earlier. Well, our story is found in Luke chapter 18, in verses 18 through 30, and it begins, and by the way, I'm going to make references to both Matthew and Mark, because this account is found in all three of those gospel narratives. We'll be focusing in Luke. So Luke 18, 18, we read, Now a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good teacher! What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Mark will add for us that Jesus was going out on the road and one came running and knelt before him. So we have this young ruler, a certain ruler, who runs toward Jesus and kneels before him, which means there's a sense of urgency on the part of this young ruler. It's important that he catches Jesus before he he leaves town and he had something he wants to ask him. And he says, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What good things shall I do? This is the uh, question that implies that he has a lack of assurance. We're going to see he's done a lot of good. He's in good shape, so he thinks. But he's feeling like he's missing one little thing, one, one little tidbit, just something that would put him over the top. You know, just another thin little wafer. It's just a thin wafer. And all of his performance, it's all was so good, and his wealth was showing up. He was very, very wealthy. And this, of course, demonstrates that God approves him, as the Pharisees and others would believe, that if you were wealthy, this was a sign of religious uh, excellence, and God approves you, and you're most likely to go to heaven. And yet he still didn't have ultimate assurance. And so we learn, you know, when you when you have something that doesn't work, you want to take it back. You go in, you get something serviced. If you buy an appliance or something, you bring it back. And, and you know, this is a good example. Here's this young ruler. He's, he's involved. Uh, he's got a religious life. He's a Jew, and he wants to go into the kingdom. He's done many, many good things. His product was Phariseeism and religion. And yet, 
it isn't delivering. I mean, you'd think that the Pharisees in religion would say, here's how you have eternal life. We're going to prepare you for heaven. We're going to send you off and give you assurance. So come and give money, and you do, and the product doesn't work. What do you do when you don't have assurance? If you're sitting here today and you don't know with 100% certainty, absolutely for sure that you're going to go to heaven when you die, it's time to take something back and to trade it in and get a new one. Maybe you've sat in a church for hours, you've dished out money, and you've volunteered, and you've done all those prayers, and yet you don't know yet for sure that you will enter the kingdom as this rich young ruler is questioning the same thing. Well, verse 19, Jesus said to him, well, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. So he's getting right to the heart of the matter because he's God, and he knows what the young man is thinking. And so he's basically saying, look, are you saying I'm God? Because there's only one who is good, that's God. Because if you're saying that I'm God, then we're going to have a really good conversation here. But, verse 20, uh, 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 we read that uh, he goes on to say, Jesus does, You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. So you know the commandments. And if you want to enter life, according to Matthew, he says it this way, keep those commandments. And then in Matthew, he also goes on, the young ruler does, and says, well, which ones? And Jesus had just mentioned those. But in Matthew's account, he also mentions as the last commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Think about that. And he also says in Mark's account, uh, he adds the commandment Jesus does, do not defraud. Now that word defraud, defraud rather, means to cause another to suffer loss by taking something away through illicit means. In other words, it's got an economic background and it means to deprive another of something that was theirs or in some way should have been theirs. And so uh, perhaps that's relevant to a, to a young, rich person. I don't know. But anyway, these are all hor- the horizontal commandments. These are commandments, don't lie, don't steal, adultery, etc., that are involving interactions with your fellow human beings. And they're very uh, relational in context. In fact, these are things that make for good relationships, these commandments, if they were to be uh, honored and kept. Well, in verse 21, the young ruler responds and says, all these things I have kept from my youth. But it's interesting, and as he just now says, look, I have done all these things. In fact, what do I still lack, he adds in Matthew. But in Mark, here's how the young ruler answers. He says, teacher, all these things I have kept. Now, Jesus asked him a question earlier. Why do you call me good? Are you saying I'm God? And it never got answered. It seems to be just like that got you know, unanswered or just you know, ignored. But no, the young ruler heard Jesus clearly about that question, what he was asking him. Are you calling me God? And we know it because here in Mark's account, he says, teacher, all things, all these things I have kept. He doesn't say, good teacher. He drops the good. In other words, yes, I heard your question toward me, and here is my answer. No, no, I do not believe you are God. And so this young man is deceived. He is talking to the thrice holy God, Jesus, God in the flesh, and saying he's not broken any of these commandments, all these ones that are visible and can be seen and verified horizontally by others. Now this is what we call pride. Pride has got a, is a high view of self, and it leads to arrogance, and there's obviously self-righteousness here, all rolled into one package. So humanly, he's looking really good, but he's just very much with a deceived view of himself. Proverbs 6 tells us how God would see this. Proverbs 6, 16 through 19, 
We read, these six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look. And then a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, and a heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that are swift and running to evil, and a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. So the first thing on God's list of things he really doesn't like, in fact that he hates, is pride. And this rich ruler is full of all of that. (laughs) So, verse 22, then Jesus, when he heard these things, he said to him, and he's going to start to respond to him. But before we do that, in Mark, in chapter 10, it says this, looking at him, he loved him. So this young man says, what? I've kept all these commandments from my youth, full of pride, the very thing that Jesus hates. And he loved him. Ask yourself, what do you hate? Someone who's a racist bigot? Maybe a super liberal hippie type? Or maybe someone from a violent gang? Or a left lane lunkerhead on the highway? Or people with 15 items in the 10 item or less line at the store? Now look at them, that miserable creature. And now have compassion on them and mercy toward them and love for them. The ones that irritate you, that are displaying the worst, that's Jesus. He's looking at this young ruler, and he loves him, even though what he's all about is the one thing that God hates the most, the self-reliant pride and uh, uh, self-approval and high view of self. Now, this love Jesus has for this ruler, there's no reason for it. There's no cause that the ruler's giving. There's no reason that God loves you and I. We don't give him cause for this. But he is love, and that is who our God is. He's a God of love. So Jesus heard these things when he says, I've kept them all. And in Luke 18, 22, we continue. He says, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When he mentioned treasure in heaven, Luke did a few chapters earlier about how you can pay it forward when he was actually talking about money, and the Pharisees were really upset by that and gnashed on him, if you remember. But at any rate, he goes on to say in the same uh, context in Matthew, when when Matthew records it, he says, if you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor, etc. If you want to be perfect, And you would think the young ruler would immediately protest. No, 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 no. I'm not saying I'm perfect. But in reality, that is what he's saying. And his self-righteousness and this very high view of himself is the core of his spiritual problem. And so through the lens of his self-righteousness, he fails to see who Jesus is, that he's God, and what he, the ruler, really needs. And Matthew, the ruler, even asks, what do I lack? And Jesus is saying here, you still lack one thing. He's saying you lack understanding who I am and the truth that I give. And so you don't see or trust me. Well, he also, Mark says, go your way, sell whatever you have in his version, and come and take up the cross and follow me. Well, now the cross is not identified with Jesus Christ yet or Christianity. This is pre-cross. No one understands that part of it yet. But the cross would be, especially in that culture then and there, uh, identified with the worst criminals and with sin and shame, and it would be unappealing to the max. So he says to this very got-it-all-together, high-reputation, profound young ruler, 
something that is entirely unappealing to him. That's not what he was looking for. This is not what he's going to sign up for. So verse 23 says, when he heard this, the young ruler, he became sorrowful for he was very rich. When he heard this word, the words of Jesus, he went away sorrowful. Notice he made a choice. The choice was made. He's going to go away in a different direction. But he's not doing it happily. He came thinking Jesus could give him one little tidbit to help give him over the hump, the hurdle of assurance. But this was something totally different, and this was a blatant, inconvenient truth. So verse 24, when Jesus saw that he became sorrowful, he said, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So he's saying, for the rich to enter the kingdom of God, why, that's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. In other words, it's impossible. That's the point. Some interpreters try to uh, make this figurative and metaphorical and so forth. And, and, uh, but no, he's talking about a big one-humped, two-humped camel uh, get, trying to get through an eye of a sewing needle. And it's an absurd picture, and it's impossible, which is the point. So we don't want to try to diffuse this imagery. Or, or some have come along and said, you know, there was a small gate in the wall of Jerusalem that came to be known as the eye of the needle. And so you would only, if you had to get into through that one, it was much smaller. The camel would have to stoop and you'd have to help him get down and just shove him through there. It'd be oh, a huge ordeal and a lot of effort and so forth. And this even gets used uh, by proponents of the lordship salvation view of the theological view and so forth. So that's salvation, you have to just be really humble and, and uh, just, you know, willing to uh, cast yourself down, etc. But no. First of all, that eye of the needle gate in the wall of Jerusalem is historically flimsy. Uh, there's little evidence of it. But even when they said it was there, that uh, door didn't exist or didn't come into being until centuries later from this time of Jesus. So he's not talking about some little door or anything else. He's literal. So that means rich people can't go to heaven, right? Are there rich people in heaven? Well, yeah. We know Abraham was very prosperous and wealthy. David was as well. Solomon in the New Testament. You know, Matthew was a tax collector. By necessity, he would have been very wealthy. Uh, and I'm sure many others. So there are people with wealth that are in heaven. So what's the point here then, Jesus? And the point is, is if you're going to trust in your riches, if you're going to depend on your wealth and your advantages and your reputation that comes with it, you will not be able to enter heaven because you are trusting the wrong object. You don't see Jesus as God and Messiah and Savior. You just see him as someone interesting in whom you can run up to and ask a question and he'll help you get over a little hump. But he didn't die for you or pay for your sin. He's not the door, the ticket to get in. You see, it's like we're at the door of I want to get into a big event. And I want to get into this event, but I need a ticket. And, and a raffle ticket I bought from a Girl Scout won't get me into the Taylor Swift concert. Nor will a ticket to a high school sporting event. I need the right ticket, the one that will be accepted at the door. Well, Luke 18, 26, when Jesus said it's impossible for a rich person to enter, uh, those who heard it said, who then can be saved? And the disciples said this with astonishment. In fact, in Mark and Matthew, it says they were astonished at his words. They were greatly astonished, says Matthew. And that word means to be just 
amazed and overwhelmed in the vernacular. They were blown away. And with that, Jesus says a second time to them in Mark chapter 10, verse 24, he says, children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. And here now we see the issue is clearly laid bare. The problem is they trust in riches, not in Jesus Christ or God, the Savior and their Creator, who provides for them the ticket to get into heaven, which is not based on their goodness or their works. It is based on God. So the rich people will tend to rely on their riches. They won't see their need as a typical, uh, you could say as in a proverbial sense, so riches will help prevent you seeing your need, and you too often, rich people, will try to buy their way toward whatever they want or they get used to that, whatever. The idea is your riches are not the ticket. And that's hard, what Jesus is saying, for them to see that. But verse 27, Jesus says, But the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. You see, we are sinners, and we are not holy. We are not keeping the law like this rich young ruler thought he did all the time. And therefore, we're not qualified to enter a perfect, righteous, holy, and pure heaven. We're outsiders, and we can't even fix it. There's no way. It's like having a deep red wine stain on a beautiful white shirt. It creates a permanent stain. And so this is the impossible part. With men, it's impossible. But with God... Here's our possibilities. He figures it out. With God, all things are possible because of who he is. He's a God of love and of grace, and he has wisdom, and he figures this out. How can we be cleansed? How can we be purified and have real righteousness, the righteousness of God, and enter into a perfect heaven and be there and be comfortable there and accepted there forever? How, what's my ticket to get in? My ticket is Jesus Christ. And what is the cost of that ticket? His death. He demonstrated his love at the cross for you and for all humanity. He died on our behalf. He suffered there because that's the penalty we should have taken upon ourselves for the sin that we commit. We know we've committed adultery. We've lusted in our heart. We have lied. We've borne false witness. We have been selfish. We haven't loved our neighbor as ourselves. So we're guilty. And the penalty of sin of God's justice is upon us, and Jesus Christ takes it on himself as our substitute. And there... God carries out his penalty and the wrath of his sin on uh, of our sin on Jesus Christ and now he can provide for us through his death and now resurrection as he's alive and victorious the the ticket we can escape our penalty and have cleansing and walk victoriously into heaven on the merits of Jesus Christ and his goodness and I have eternal life. Jesus says it's free and it's available for everyone. He's offering us life. That God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe on him will not perish, but have eternal life. That's a promise. And you take that by faith. Whosoever believes on him. And you trust in the goodness of God and the payment Christ made. And this love then is offered and this ticket is free. And you take it by faith, meaning you're persuaded that, yes, God knows me. Yes, God sees my sin, but he still loves me. And Jesus died for me and unconditionally has paid for my sin. And now I have life through him when I take it by faith. 
You know, this was what Jesus is saying. This this faith, this gift, this life was for Israel and the Jews that he's speaking with there, and it'll be for all Gentiles afterwards too. So God made a choice, thinking of impossible possibility. God chose to create humanity back at the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve to enjoy a relationship with him and to have intimate fellowship with him and to enjoy the Godhead and the Trinity. And there was this to be this harmony, but then uh, a man chose, Adam and Eve chose, in a negative sense, and they chose negatively to pursue their own will. And this allowed sin to enter in a necessary death or separation between holiness and sin. And this is impossible for Adam and Eve to fix. They're done. We're all dead in the water with them because they are like the federal head of all humanity. So God chose, and then humanity chose, and now it's impossible. But then God chose again. All things are possible. And he sent his own son. He had a plan. He provided a way back, and he gave the world a ticket through Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. And now you and I, we can choose. Possibilities are before every one of us. Will you respond? Will you take that ticket by faith? Will you walk into heaven on the basis of what Christ has done for you and your faith in him? And this is the issue in all evangelism, to have the right Savior, the right object of faith, the right ticket. Who is Jesus? He is God. Are you calling him God? The rich young ruler politely answered, no. But he is the one you're to trust. He is God. He is Savior. And you and I are sinners that have a need, and we can't buy it. We can't fix it ourselves. The issue is trust. What is the ticket? What is the basis for, for entry? And that is the truth of the gospel. So we go on to verse 28. After Jesus had explained this and the rich young ruler had walked away as he did not respond to truth and he did not put his faith in Christ, at least there, then Peter said, hey, see, we've left all and followed you. (laughs) He's astute. He's looking around and says, hey, man, that's what we've done. And so he said to them, Jesus, you know, responds, oh, by Jesus says, so what will we get is, is, is the essence of what Peter asked Jesus. And so Jesus says, so he said to them, assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the ages to come. So he says, God sees it, Peter. He knows all. And you will have enhanced and deeper relationships here. You'll have tremendous commonality with these fellow brethren. And you will have an enhanced quality of life. And you'll have eternal life in the world to come. A huge quality of life then. You see, they've already have eternal life. They've already believed on Jesus Christ. But what have they done? They went on and they have been following him in this Jewish context and as as their teacher. And they have been following Jesus. They're following a Savior. They were drawn to his message, to his person. And so they've already chosen to follow him. And now Jesus is saying, and as you go down this road with me, it'll lead to an enhanced life, new relationships, amazing things. And you'll have intangible riches. And straight up, you'll have eternal life on the other side. And all of this comes as a result of believing of the truth, of hearing and believing Jesus and following him. This is a byproduct. You first are following truth. And the ruler wishes to cling, the rich young ruler, to cling to what he already had. So he'll miss the opportunity for things that are so much better, the intangible things. And he clings to his temporal wealth at the expense of having treasures in heaven. 
See, he was blinded. He thinks he's so right, but he's not. And Peter and the others, he tells them they will have better riches and intangible ones both here and there. So that ends our story. want to also look at some summary points for the young ruler before we're done. Let's just look. He lacked security in spite of his impressive works and his credentials. You see, religion and self-works never really give you that assurance and security. Only Christ does. He was confident that he was right in his ways. He was all that in a bag of chips, we could say. He wasn't, the text doesn't say he was a Pharisee, but he could have been, or he maybe turns into one. He's going to be certainly praised by the Pharisees as he has wealth, and he's just all the compliments. He's held in high regard. He's a successful, rich, young ruler. And, of course, he's going to have a lower opinion of others as that just comes with the territory. But we see that he's blind in several ways. First, he's blind toward who Jesus was, the Messiah, his God. He heard, but he did not engage on that truth. When Jesus tried to tempt him into that conversation, he avoided it. He was very comfortable with his ticket, but he was the wrong one. He was blind not only toward Jesus, but toward himself, as he saw himself in a very high, and, uh, you know, just, I am all this, and I have always kept these things, and I'm never done wrong, and I'm so put together. So that's going to lead to arrogance, and nothing, isn't it awful when you know someone who's arrogant and wrong? He was blind, thirdly, toward his own hypocrisy. You know, Jesus, Matthew mentioned, love your neighbor as yourself. But when he was called to put that into action, he said, nope, no thanks, not going to do that. He would say, I have kept all these from my youth, but he clearly hasn't. You know, we all have plenty of hypocrisy to go around. We can't just pick on him or her or the other ones. It's for all of us. You know why? Because we're all sinners. We're all inconsistent. Inherent within us is that uh, inconsistency and hypocrisy. You know, we could ask, we all are this way. Look, I can ask people, hey, are there other bad drivers out there? Oh, we'd say yes. All the hands would go up. But are you a bad driver? Not very many hands. Do some people dress immodestly? All the hands would go up. Are you immodest? No, very few hands would go up. Can you, can someone, is it possible to lose salvation? Some who believe that would say yes, but absolutely raise their hand. Someone to definitely lose it. Will you lose your salvation all of a sudden? No, no, I'll be good to the end. Just like the young ruler here. Don't get it. Well, that's hypocrisy. And the point here is we all have it, but why? Why are we so blind to it? Why do we have this blindness to our hypocrisy without seeing it? We can even just become more arrogant and have more incorrectness and continue to miss God's standard of truth. So what's the cure for this? What's the remedy? It is truth. Truth, though, that is recognized. You see, truth will set you free, but he does say that it's the truth that you know that sets you free. It's the truth that we know sets us free. Because truth then corrects us and convicts us and instructs us in righteousness as it's inspired of God, as 1 Timothy 3.16 says. Titus 1.2 reminds us that God cannot lie, which means all of his word is truth, which means as Christians we value truth. We love truth. We're anchored in truth. We appreciate truth and should be walking and trafficking in truth. People of truth, people known for the love of the truth, we would then not be vulnerable 
to lies and conspiracies. We uphold the truth. The Word of God is the truth, and we want to present that in the, to the secular world, this message of truth and the gospel in Jesus Christ. But that truth is only seen as precious and valuable if we're humbled by it and we recognize it, accept it, honor it, preserve it. You see, the real reality is the spiritual reality. It's what God says. You know, he tells us salvation is by grace. It's a gift. It's not of works. It's through Christ alone. Others believe and cling to religious systems and rituals and denominations, etc., that say something different. What's it going to be? Truth is to convince us and show us what is real. So we want to let this truth shape us and shape our thinking and motivate us. And it would be really good for us to stop every now and then and say, hey, maybe I got some things wrong. Is it possible? How I view those people or that relationship I'm in or my politics or my opinions on various things. Maybe, maybe, maybe an honest look at truth again. That'd be good for all of us to do this occasionally. Well, with truth comes humility as we see a childlike faith and humility like children And that is what is in our very context and flow. Both Matthew, Mark, Luke, they all were talking about uh, before this story of the rich ruler where Jesus was saying how the kingdom is such as these children. And don't prevent the children from coming to me, for such are the kingdom of God. And whoever wants to be great in the kingdom is least on earth and uses a child to, to teach that lesson. So the kingdom is even mentioned several times in our passage over and over to be entering the kingdom. And, you know, in the book of Mark, when he's answering the disciples, how, who can be saved then? He said, children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches. There's the comparison of the earlier teaching on simplicity of children with the rich young ruler. It's an obvious comparison. How do you enter the kingdom like children? Simple humility, trust, following after Jesus, It's not complicated. Faith alone, impressed with Jesus, willing to be loved, content in him. Children have such a simple expression, and it's precious, and we often are the opposite of children. We grow up and become adults, right? Life gets complicated, as we said before uh, last time. We see that we have adult stuff in our life, strife and competitiveness and pecking orders and categories and divisions, and we have envies and everything else. And this young ruler, again, doesn't say he's a Pharisee, but he would be highly praised by them. And the Pharisees, they see life, they they traffic in divisions and much self-righteousness, and they're better than the others. And we are right, and they are wrong, and you are less than, and we are good. The Pharisees, they would be the decent, law-abiding, upright citizens. That's the tagline when you hear that. That's a tagline for Pharisee. So who are the Pharisees today? They were the religious leaders and the religious crowd then. Then wouldn't it be the same today? The religious crowd, the the Christians, we are very prone to it. I think it's far more prevalent than we ever want to admit. We are the Pharisees. Our churches are full of Pharisees. They are us. And so we could be saying in our own settings, we're decent, law-abiding citizens and upright. That's just older brotherism. That's what he would say. We would emphasize, we'd say, yes, grace is beautiful, but we also have to do our part and we must be responsible and keep short accounts and have be serving and meet the expectations of even of a community expectations and do, et cetera, et cetera. And it just gets a subtle non-grace. We have subtly approved lists of hobbies or interests or vacations you can take or sports or purchases that you make or you know make sure you don't spend more on your pets than or your vacations or whatever than other things 
These are subtle imp- uh, impressions that are made on us, and this is where life gets complicated. We're to fight the Romans like they did in Jesus' day. We're to fight, 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 fight the Romans, resist them, and preach against them and refuse them and hate them. And then we have some anger and criticisms that get built up, and we can get better than isms, and we can be pious, and we can have phony greetings and use phony words, and, and we can be gliding on the robes of being right and above so many. Oh, those poor churches down the street that don't have the gospel right, or they say this, or they don't teach that, and who's ever done? And those poor sheep that are in there, and I'm so glad I'm not like them. It's called the adult stuff that complicates everything. It's the Pharisee life. In a picture, to prompt our thoughts a bit, we could just uh, think of the January 6th scene in Washington, D.C., just just a grieving time, wasn't it, to see all of that that was going on, the overrunning of the Capitol, et cetera. And that crowd, all those thousands of people that stormed the Capitol, did they remind you of like being like children or childlike? Did they give you the impression they're pilgrims merely just passing through? Because they did have Jesus saves flags, and there was even, I saw videos of some in a prayer circle praying before they stormed, the capital. We saw some with Christian flags and some other overt signs and things. Uh, and some accounts that's even been described as many, many Christians involved or even a Christian res- insurrection to storm the Capitol building in his name, violence done in the name of Jesus. And so we scratch our heads. And I know they would say they are decent, law-abiding, upright citizens doing what was within their right. And they would maybe even employ whataboutism about the summer protests and all that went on last summer and all that stuff but they didn't have Christian flags and banners and prayer circles before those protests last summer. And that's the difference. This, is, this has been, the Savior is brought into this, but this is not what the Savior is about. This is not the cause of Jesus Christ. At his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, remember Peter cuts off the ear of a Roman soldier and Peter, or Jesus says, oh, Peter, Peter, and he puts the ear back on and heals the soldier right there. And he says, those who live by the sword will die by the sword. He tells Pontius Pilate when asked if he was a king, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. There's no calls in the New Testament for us to come to arms and make physical war and rebel against that authority. There's nothing even to march against in slavery in the New Testament. Instead, we're to turn the other cheek. Romans 12, 19 through 21, Paul writes, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 1 Peter 2, 9-17 talks about us being a royal priesthood, a holy nation of God's own special people. And we can proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light, who once were not a people but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. We are people of mercy and of the light. And he says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, Abstain from fleshly lusts which war against your soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors 
as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. This is the will of God. Boy, it seems confusing today, though, doesn't it at times? What are we supposed to believe? There's so much information out there. But it has a lot to do with who you choose to listen to. Yes, we're inundated with a mass of information and disinformation and misinformation. And who do we believe? There's opinions all over the place. We are told to call to question every piece of news and which news is fake and so forth. And what is true? What's fake? And, you know, they are going to do this and they are trying to do that. Well, who are the they? And then the fears get built up and many promote this fear. And there's distrust that is just promulgated here. And we are all victims. Yes, everyone, we are all victims and nothing is fake. And there's, there's things that we hold to with no evidence. We cling to them as if they're real, and that causes anger and turns even into violence. And so we think we should circle the wagons and defend to the end, and we can become dominated by fear. And there's distrust in the air, even violence. And we can stop and say, wait, what is the source of, did God say distrust and fear and violence? And when we Listen to the right things. The confusion really can start to evaporate. And so the remedy is truth, friends, the truth of Jesus Christ, the truth of God, of his grace, of his mercy, how we've obtained mercy. And we're sojourners and we're just passing through and we have so much to look forward to in the future. And we have a message of hope and good news now. And we're invited by Jesus who says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. He says, come to me. And these were, he said to the, to the Jews who at that time were under such harassment and abuse by the Pharisees and their regulations and their expectations and their self-righteousness and their legalism. Come. And he says this, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. The kingdom is like those of children, humbled, free of all those pressures and the lies and to fight their causes. Sheep need to be led, and we are, by Jesus with his truth. When we recognize, that truth sets us free. The chief shepherd, well, let's see him, let's recognize him, know his words, and follow after him. So here you are, you're standing, and Jesus, he's standing you know, ahead of you just a bit, and he says, I am God. Now follow me, be humbled. And yet between you and Jesus, there's your idol. And you have it, whatever that idol is. And the rich young ruler was his wealth. Maybe it's your opinions, your just cause, whatever. Follow me. And he starts to walk and move on down the road. And sadly, you turn, holding on to your cause, your idol. You want to follow after him, but you're sad because you want to have it both ways, but you can't serve God and fill in the blank. You can't have both truth and non-truth. One in each hand. you got to let one go. Drop the cause, friends. Drop the lie. Don't cling to the wealth or the reputation or the works of religion or the second tense Phariseeism of the good upright citizens fighting the bad things of society. Let it go. Hear the truth, the simplicity. God warns us, or Jesus, or excuse me, John tells us rather in 1 John 4, there is no fear in love. And 2 Timothy 1 says, 1, 7 reminds us, for God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. He hasn't given us the spirit of fear, so let's choose him. 
Let's choose him for eternal life like the rich young ruler. Let's not walk away, but choose him, friends. If you've never believed, now's the time. Put your faith in his death and his resurrection and the life he's offering you. And if you're saved, let's choose him. Let's follow him and know him and recognize that truth and move away from the distractions. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you that you are God. You are perfect. You are holy good and gracious and so worthy of our praise and you offer us life and we take it at a point in time through faith in christ and now as christians if we've believed in you we have a new life and we have a real cause the truth of you honoring the truth and resisting lies knowing your yoke is easy so give us clarity we ask to see the truth and follow him and show us our cause again and again so we may not forget and so may we pursue and follow you and we ask it and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks for listening again. And remember, where the Spirit of God is, there is always a